0: Stephen Kotkin is one of the greatest historians of his generation, the closest thing we have to a Robert Caro for people with an unhealthy fascination with communism. Most famous for his first two parts of his Stalin biography, his back catalog of Magnetic Mountain, Armageddon Averted, and in particular, Uncivil Society are also must-read classics. Steven also has a deep interest in China as evinced by his 96% open rate on the China Talk newsletter over the past few years, which you should all sign up to at chinatalk.substack.com. Today, we're gonna talk about the USSR, Xi, Leninism, some reading recommendations, and whatever else is on his mind. Professor, what an honor. Thank you for the opportunity. So I wanna start by reading you some she quotes. Uh, Let's start with 2013. Why did the Soviet Union disintegrate? Why did the Communist Party of the Soviet Union fall to pieces? An important reason is that in the ideological domain, competition is fierce. To completely repudiate the historical experience of the Soviet Union, to repudiate the history of the CPSU, to repudiate Lenin, to repudiate Stalin was to wreck chaos in Soviet ideology and engage in historical nihilism. It caused party organizations at all levels to have barely any function whatsoever. It robbed the party of its leadership, of its military. In the end, the CPSU, as great a party as it was, scattered like a flock of frightened beasts. The Soviet Union, as great a country as it was, shattered into a dozen pieces. This is a lesson from the past.
1: So he's right. His entire life is dedicated to preventing this happening to the Chinese Communist Party. This is what is uppermost in his mind. It's what he uh, inculcates in the party cadres incessantly. Let's remember who ran the party school for a while. There are two subjects at party school that are absolutely dominant in the Chinese case. One is the supposed decline of the United States, about how the United States is decadent, the United States is power of the past. This is completely wrong, and more and more party officials are coming to understand this thanks to Matt Pottinger and the Trump administration, thanks to Putin's criminal aggression in Ukraine, which has backfired on both him and Xi Jinping. But we'll have to wait for that to play out, that realization that teaching about the end of American power is a fallacy. But the other big subject, in fact, it's an even bigger subject for them, is not having a Soviet collapse in China and therefore studying the Soviet collapse all the way, every way, every angle, and making sure it doesn't happen there. That is Xi's life project, the big subject at the party school. And it's one of the reasons why I think my own work was pirated, translated into Chinese. And at least for some people was a text study. So sure,
0: let's talk about uncivil society. The idea that you put forward in that book is that, you know, this, this sort of Western vision of dissidents and, and sort of folks around the margins being the real cause of the fall of the Soviet Union is in fact not the case. And in, it doesn't necessarily need, in a in a sort of Leninist or Marxist-Leninist regime, a uh, sort of like intelligentsia or broad civil society to push you there. But in fact, the system can just collapse on itself very quickly and almost like a bank-run style development. Elaborate on that and then I guess apply it to China today. What do you see and not see in parallels between the, the 70s and 80s and the Soviet Union and, um, uh, and China in the 2020s?
1: Well, let's acknowledge that the courage of the dissidents is often just astonishing and inspiring people willing to suffer potential expulsion, that is forced exile, imprisonment, or worse, because they stand for freedom, they're against the regime's dictatorship and monopoly over the public sphere. It's very impressive to see these people. But the main threat to communism is communism. This is the paradox of the system. The Communist Party, is a Leninist organization. Now, if you were in China Studies, you probably read the book by Shurman many years ago. But it happens to be an adaptation of Philip Selznick's book, The Organizational Weapon. It's one of my go-to books on all Leninist regimes, including the China one. And the most remarkable thing about Leninist regimes is that they're all powerful and brittle simultaneously. The party is ubiquitous. It shadows every single institution, every organization, whether that's in the state bureaucracy, in the military, in the education system, and in China's case, in the quasi-private sphere. It's hard to know what to call it now, uh, following um, uh, Norton's important intervention on CCP Inc. But in any case, the party is this great weapon for control. At the same time, however, you can't be half communist, just like you can't be half pregnant. So the party is either a monopoly or it begins to unravel. There's no political reform equilibrium. You begin to open up the party. You begin to say, okay, let's have debate inside the party. Let's have some glossiness or some opening. Let's maybe even have some competitive elections inside the party. And what happens, Jordan? What happens is some people come forward and they say, I don't want the Communist Party. I want another party. And the party officials say, no, 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 that's not what we're allowing. We're only allowing debate inside the party. We're keeping the Communist Party monopoly. We're just liberalizing it a little bit. We saw this in Hungary in 1956. We saw this in Czechoslovakia, the so-called Prague Spring in 68. We saw this in Gorbachev. Reform. As Brezhnev said in 68, he was the general secretary watching Dubček in Prague, and and they were reporting on the unraveling of the system as Dubček was trying to re-energize it, liberalize it, open up the communism while keeping the monopoly. And Brezhnev said at a Politburo meeting, reform is counter-revolution, or what we would call auto-liquidation. And we lived through the Gorbachev period as well where you start the opening politically, and where does it stop? Because people keep pushing and pushing and pushing until they're outside the communist monopoly. And so you have a choice. You can end the political reform, and you can crack down, and you can say, we're putting this genie back in the bottle, no more political reform. Or you can let it unfold, and you can think it's going to work at some point. It's just a little bit chaotic as Uh, unfolding more chaotic than we anticipated. So Gorbachev was true to his beliefs. He believed in this communism with a human face. He believed in the possibility of reform. He believed in a liberalized Communist Party monopoly. And as a result, he destroyed communism in the Soviet Union. And because the party overrode the federal structure of the Soviet state, That is to say, the Soviet state was a federalism. There was the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic and the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, and they were all equal members of a federation, but the party was a pyramid with military discipline. The party overrode the state federalism in practice. But once the party disintegrates, as a result of Gorbachev trying to open it up politically, you lose the Soviet centralized state and you get the voluntary federation, and the federal pieces decide they want out as well, just like many people wanted out of the Communist Party monopoly. And so Xi Jinping is now looking back at this history, and God forbid some communism with a human face, communist political liberalization is going to take place because it would be the unraveling of the system if it were allowed to go all the way. So this is the paradox of what Selznick called the organizational weapon, borrowing Lenin's terminology, right? This is the paradox of a Leninist structure, all powerful and brittle at the same time, no political reform equilibrium. Therefore, for us, a Gorbachev in China would be salvation, because a Gorbachev could potentially bring down that regime. And for Xi Jinping, That's to be prevented at all costs. Now, if you think about this a little bit more deeply, sure, they can open up the economy. They can do economic liberalization. The Soviets did this, by the way, under Lenin in the early 1920s, where they actually strengthened the communist monopoly in the 20s. And yet they opened up the economy to allow legal private markets and market behavior. This was called the new economic policy or the NEP. There was never a political NEP. They didn't open up the political system. In fact, as I said, they tightened the political system. And they experimented with the market economy for a time, but they were communists. So the market was not an end in itself. It was a means to an end. Once the country wasn't starving anymore, as it was when they launched the new economic policy in 1921, once the things had stabilized economically, you had Stalin eliminate markets and private property once again, because for Marxists, the base can't be capitalist, and then the p- political structure or the superstructure can't be communist and survive, because the base, the socioeconomic relations, right, the, the means of production who controls them is determinative for Marxism. Now you have Deng Xiaoping and the Chinese communists as well. It's a version of the new economic policy. There still is a communist monopoly, no political nep to speak of. Sure, eventually you get some village elections. They're gone now for the obvious reason that they threaten the communist monopoly. And so all the time I've been watching saying, how far can this go before the communist party leadership begins to feel that it threatens their monopoly? Because accumulation of wealth, independent private wealth is the accumulation of power. And so ipso facto, even if you don't adhere to the Leninist ideology about the base and the superstructure, even if you're just pragmatically driven, nonetheless, people with a lot of money have a lot of power and they could ipso facto threaten the communist monopoly. So at some point I'm thinking they're going to need to crack down on the private sector again, because it's, they're going to feel that it's threatening their communist party monopoly over the political system and the public sphere. Now, of course, they need the private sector for GDP growth and job creation, but the private sector is a threat. So you have the opening and then the strangulation, and the opening and the strangulation, right? And so this is the dynamic you would expect, because once again, you can't be half communist. And so this regime is limited it's limited in what it can do because it doesn't want to give up its power voluntarily. And so the space in which it can operate, how much private sector it can tolerate and what kind, whether it can open up at all politically, including relaxing censorship, these are limited by the nature of the regime, by the organizational weapon, by the power of the system is also a limitation on the system. So just to conclude this piece, Jordan, If you put this together, it turns out that every day is existential for the communist regime. Now, we here in democratic rule of law systems, we worry about this policy and that policy, this norm-busting and that norm-busting, this political figure and that political figure. But we survive. The craziest political figures, the most inept political figures, the most corrupt political figures. It's not existential for us because ours is based on resilient institutions. And so, to conclude, an answer to to the quote from Xi Jinping that you presented not only is every day existential for them in the sense that if they allow too much opening, their entire system can begin to unravel. Not only that, but they think that we can accelerate that process, that we can influence that process. The great fear of of Xi Jinping and Putin when it comes to the U.S. is not things like NATO expansion, it's so-called color revolution. It's so-called democracy, Western values, rule of law, universal human rights penetrating the Chinese public sphere, penetrating the consciousness of the people and spreading, and therefore giving rise rise to calls for opening up the political system. And they must live with this every day. Try to reap the benefits of the global economy and import the technology and import the foreign direct investment and make sure they deepen the trade ties and some of those dependencies on the Chinese economy that they're able to manipulate. But when they do that, the ideas and the values and the practices sometimes ride along with the technology and with the FBI. And so that's a very difficult proposition to manage on a day-by-day basis. And we see how worried they are about this. And you know what? He's right to be worried.
0: You've spoken before about the idea of leverage by creating the possibility of political alternatives. Can you expand on that?
1: These regimes can be inept, they can fail at everything, they can do COVID lockdown, zero COVID in the middle of the night uh, being repealed. The people can see how inept they are, the people can suffer the consequences, whatever the number that, that we can guesstimate of deaths of people who are vulnerable to the reopening in the dead of night. And yet they can stay in power provided they can suppress, deny all political alternatives. So the game with all of these regimes is the cultivation, the appearance of possible alternatives in the political realm. And so that's where we come in. You think about deterrence for a regime like this. And sure, you have to have military capabilities that they're afraid of. Sure, you have to have other instruments in the toolkit that you can use uh potentially coercively but also just as a threat so that they're intimidated to take some actions that might transgress international law or the sovereignty of another country or the sovereignty of a self-governing island yes you must deter them militarily and economically for sure but deterrence is ultimately a political proposition If you shave a couple of points off of their GDP, they're okay with that. They're not private equity moguls. Xi Jinping shaves his own points off his GDP. But if all of a sudden there's the possibility of an alternative political system, of an alternative like rule of law, self-government, where there are genuine elections, where the party doesn't have a monopoly anymore, That scares the bejesus out of him. And that's our strength and power. And so we saw this with Hong Kong. How much did Hong Kong threaten this gigantic mainland China? Hong Kong was this amazing resource gifted to the Chinese by the British. If you look at the 1945 moment when the Japanese are in occupation of British Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a British colony. And the Japanese are in occupation. And the Japanese have now lost the war. And the Americans declare that Hong Kong is supposed to go back to China, not to Britain, to Chiang Kai-shek. And the British decide, oh no, the Chinese are not getting Hong Kong. We're taking Hong Kong back for ourselves. And the Americans try to negotiate a face-saver, a compromise. The British are not interested in anything other than re-seizure of Hong Kong and they carry it out. Could Chiang Kai-shek have taken Hong Kong back before the British? Maybe, maybe not, because of the complexity of where his troops were located, because of his focus on Manchuria, because of his reliance on America for airlift power, and all the variables that you know well. The point being is that the assertiveness of the British, rather than the acquiescence, which we could have seen from the British in this moment, meant that Hong Kong did not go to Chiang Kai-shek, which meant it did not go to Mao in 1949, which meant that Hong Kong developed as a British-controlled international financial center under the rule of law where capital was allocated on the basis of market criteria rather than political criteria cronyism or communist party decision-making. And so you look at Deng Xiaoping and you look at the Chinese miracle and you look at the story of modern China and people say to me, why didn't Gorbachev do a Deng Xiaoping? And I say to him, where was Gorbachev? Hong Kong. Where was not just the FDI and tech transfer that came in from Japan and Taiwan into China but it was funneled in through Hong Kong. And so that's the key variable. That's the key instrument. And then it turns out that this is so valuable, the British hand it back to the Chinese when the lease expires, as you know. I myself would not have done that, but once again, I wasn't in power. And so here we have then a system that works for China. It delivers enormous value for the communist regime. In Beijing, sure, there are protests in the streets, there are calls for democracy, there are real elections, there are things which you don't get on the mainland. How threatening was it to the regime in China? On an objective basis, it's hard to measure, but on a subjective basis, it was everything. It was not just a black eye. It was an alternative political system on what was now Chinese communist territory. And so how long was it going to last? As long as Xi Jinping decided it was not going to last anymore. And we saw that. And so this political alternative story, this ability to imagine a China, which is successful and free and proud and Chinese, it's not some foreign manipulated thing. It is, in fact, a domestically created Chinese aspiration. That's really where we come in as potentially looking to put deterrence here in between Xi Jinping and some of the freedom and international order and countries and self-governing islands that we're trying to protect.
0: You mentioned Selznick. What's another book? people should be reading in 2023 from the canon of Soviet or communism studies that apply, that you'd hope sort of folks thinking about China today take seriously.
1: The problem that we have is we focused on the Chinese political system and thought it evolved out of a Leninist structure. And so we have a million really good books on China that imagine that China has transcended the Leninism. And then when we discover that the Leninist structure never went away, and in fact that they're trying, as one would expect, to reinforce it, to bring back its dynamism, strength, and energy, not with political opening, but with the opposite, with the hardline version of the Leninist structure, with the Stalin version of the Leninist structure, with the Mao version of the Leninist structure. It's time to return to that work. It's time to return to the work that we thought was done, that our field, China studies, communist studies, Soviet studies, produced and is of tremendous value still today, despite all the changes that you know about. However, having said that, it's also necessary to understand that the ideology story is more complex, both from those who dismissed it and those who now say that it's back and really important. The Leninist structure doesn't necessarily determine policies or ideologies completely. Yes, it limits the scope of action in terms of political reform unless you want to commit suicide, but it doesn't determine what policy you might have on X, Y, and Z. Those are determined in the competition among interest groups, in the leaders' preferences, in the international environment in which they find themselves, is it conducive or corrosive to to their aspirations or aims? And so the complexity of understanding motivation and decision-making and the role of ideology and how far ideology goes, this is something that the old literature sometimes was simplistic about or dismissive about on the other side, where people said it was all cynicism and not ideology. Here's what's really important to understand about these kinds of things in in going forward, as well as looking back. When you think about Marxism-Leninism, you have Marxism, then you have Marxism-Leninism, which is Marxism in power. When you think about this, it had two fundamental aspects. One was anti-capitalism, meaning that markets, private property, wage labor, or wage slavery, as Marx called it, these were not just exploitative, but alienating. Fundamentally alienating in a humanity or humane sense. It was worse than inequality. It was worse than exploitation, right? It was a fundamental destruction alienation of humanity, of the human spirit. The anti-capitalism was deep and fundamental, and so the way you transcended capitalism in the Hegelian, Aufhebung, Marxist sense was to eliminate private profits, eliminate uh, legal markets, eliminate wage labor for a time, thinking that you were going to get to the other side because you were going to remove all of these things. And of course, this led to complete statization of the economy and the kind of incentive problems and other things that we know from the so-called planned economy, which, as you know, was not planned, but was a statized, centralized allocation of scarce resources that made resources even scarcer. Okay, but the other piece of Marxism-Leninism was anti-imperialism. And anti-imperialism was just as big in some ways. And this was the idea that the West, Western power, Western countries, predominantly Europe at the time, the West is something larger and non-geographical, much bigger now, but at the time the idea was that the West was evil because it was imperialist, it took over other countries, it ended the sovereignty of what came to be called the third world, right? It went direct rule, direct rule imperialism, and sometimes indirect rule imperialism where they coerced you to do things in your economy or in your foreign policy without necessarily directly ruling your territory. And of course, this happened to China during what they call the century of humiliation. So the anti-capitalism and the anti-imperialism are the two component parts. And you can have more or less of one of those components. And so you can diminish the anti-capitalism but you can actually enhance the anti-imperialism in the Marxism-Leninism. So we think, well, some people thought, I didn't think, but some people thought that the Marxism-Leninism had died because of the diminishment, right, the diminution of the anti-capitalism for a time. But the anti-imperialism never went away. You could argue that it was, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, it was... uh, an eleven the whole time, and maybe even went to a twelve. And so the anti-imperialism means that the Marxism-Leninism never actually did vanish or die, even if you allow for the anti-capitalism to have been diminished somewhat in the thinking, in the teaching of the regime. So you could go to party school, and maybe they could teach you to get rich and use capitalism to reinforce the Chinese state, but they never relinquished their story of the century of humiliation of the anti-imperialism. And so now today, we see a version of a revival of the anti-capitalism, not getting rid of the markets, but taming the markets. Not having the markets be in charge, but having the markets solely subservient to party rule, and that goes for the biggest spheres that the party determines what Lenin used to call the commanding heights and what the Chinese might not call the commanding heights in all cases, but when you're at party school, that's the vocabulary you're going to hear. And so that means, for example, the public sphere, education, socialization of youth, the public sphere, meaning the tech companies, and then private education, tutoring, all the things that are about values, and control over values, and control over what's permissible in the public sphere. That's going to be commanding heights. And then, of course, the tech stuff in the sense of AI and biotech is also going to be commanding heights, tech superpower stuff. And then, of course, the the other things they might deem, whether it's natural resources, right, where you have massive cash flow and possibilities for corruption and patronage, which... uh, party monopolies always love. So you put all of this together and you begin to see that the common prosperity idea has resonance because it's rooted in the Marxism, Leninism, social justice, fairness, capitalism is evil, capitalism creates inequality, capitalism creates all sorts of injustice. You see it's rooted partially in that. And so you see that they can resurrect even the anti-capitalist side of the Marxism-Leninism, they can breathe new life into it without necessarily eliminating the markets, but getting the markets to work for them. And after all, the new economic policy, once again in Lenin's conception, was not an end in itself. He hated capitalism. He hated markets. He hated private property. It was just a means to an end, and when that means was no longer serving that end, You could get rid of it. And so we see now that even the ideology never went away because of the anti-imperialism piece of it, which is a big chunk, as we said. And the anti-capitalism can be resurrected or re-energized, depending on how you look at it, how much you think it went away. And so here we are, where even the ideological stuff from the Sovietology, from the Mao era, needs a revisit. Although, going forward, it's not going to look identical to what it looked like before. There's been tremendous changes. There's a huge middle class. There's a, a quasi, sort of, almost financial system. It's hard to know what to call things in China because they don't correspond to the kind of stuff that's equivalent in our system. And so we always have trouble calling the Chinese stuff with the same vocabulary that we have. That's why the CCP Inc. was an improvement on the China Inc. story. But anyway, you get the point, right? The point being is that, yes, there's Shorman, and before that there's Selznick, and then there's rich literature about Mao and ideology and cultural revolution, and how Mao was constantly upending the system for his own power. He was attacking the... Bureaucratic structures of his own state to keep them off balance for his own power. Will Xi Jinping do something like that? I'm not predicting anything, but I'm just saying that that history is worth understanding, those dynamics. Why did that happen? Was it solely the caprice of Mao? Or was there something inside the system that went that way? I recently read Shui Gong Zhou. He's a colleague of mine here at Stanford his Logic of Governance in China book. It's uh, maybe well-known already to your audience, but I mention it because it's a fantastic example of using org theory to understand China. Organizational theory was once in the sociology department and other departments here at Stanford. It was once the jewel in the crown here. We had Jim March with whom Fuang studied, and his book, incorporates so many of the insights of that literature that's been forgotten. It's not the Phil Selznick organizational weapon, Leninist party structure stuff, but it's org theory, really org theory 101 in some ways, but also 201 and 301 and 501 and all the way up to beyond the PhD level. And if you look at it, he shows you that organizations have a certain inherent logic and a dynamic and that sometimes you don't fully control this. And he goes through the introduction and evolution of competitive elections in villages, in, in, a, in a township that he's chosen, which has a certain number of villages. And it's a remarkable story because it doesn't end well, right? The elections turn out not to enhance Communist Party monopoly, but to destabilize Communist Party monopoly, to unbalance the party's monopoly. And they peter out. And so we don't have those competitive elections, we don't have the experimentation at the local level. But what we do have is the localities trying to cope with centrally imposed mandates that are unfunded and that put the localities into massive debt and ruin their fiscal situation but also create the incentive structures for them to actually worsen the fiscal situation in in an attempt to fix it. And so it's a brilliant book about perverse and unintended consequences, about org theory, about the limits of communist party experimentation, even in villages with opening the system up. And the lessons are eternal there.
0: So let's talk about another fantastic book, Joseph, Joseph Trigian's recent work about succession in... Uh, I guess Russia and China. You know, what what's your take on the, the lessons that his work and other scholarship around uh, transition moments, both in the USSR and in China, have for what we are going to face at some point in the in the coming years in China?
1: So Joe's work is absolutely outstanding, as you know, and there are many aspects that we should emphasize here. One is Joe has returned us to comparisons of the Soviet regime and the current regime in Beijing. That is to say, comparisons of communist regime types. Once again, there are differences, not just similarities. Even within the Leninist structure, there are important differences. And Joe is alive to these differences. But the idea that they can be put together, once again, is a major achievement in my view. Then, of course, Joe has the empirical dimension down. He's got the research, he's got the actual primary materials on both cases, the Soviet case and the Chinese case in terms of succession politics and succession dynamics and outcomes. And so it's very important to be able to do this with source material, primary source material with real evidence rather than just speculation or educated guesses or uh, generative AI style riffing. Uh, which is very popular, unfortunately. And so, Joe's got that. He's got the fact that th- he's comparing properly the regimes once again, not simplistically, but properly. He's got the fact that there's a massive evidentiary base. And then he's got the fact that this is a monopoly. There are specific dynamics to the monopoly. And he in in, in so many ways, it's returning us to an understanding with much deeper empirics and much deeper understanding that this is about the rule of an individual which comes about not accidentally through the monopolistic rule of the party. So you get this from Trotsky. Before Trotsky was on Lenin's side, he was against Lenin. And he wrote this famous passage about how communist monopoly would produce individual dictatorship. And and there it was, that individual dictatorship that he predicted would come about killed him after he, of course, murdered him and went in exile after he, of course, was a major facilitator and an enabler of the creation of that system. And so you have that dynamic in Joe, uh, and, and I could hit many more aspects to it that are really amazing. But the succession dynamics which are really hard for all authoritarian regimes. They're always vulnerable on this question because they don't have a legal way for people to be chosen or to assume the next leadership. It's existential. Once again, it's uncertain. All the stakeholders don't know what happens to their power and ill-gotten wealth when there's regime change, when the leader inevitably dies, which happens to all mortal human beings. It happened to Stalin 70 years ago. It happened to Mao about 47, not quite 47 years ago. And one day it'll happen. They say that graveyards are full of indispensable men and etc. But in the meantime, it's hard for them because the succession piece is so uncertain that people who want to protect their power and ill gotten gains may want to move inside the uncertainty themselves to try to protect their ill-gotten gains. And so you have intrigue and destabilization over succession before succession even happens. And then you get the succession politics, which we sometimes attribute to political differences. Sometimes we attribute it to philosophical differences. Joe shows in these cases that the policy differences were not there and that's a really big uh, achievement on his part. And so, let me just say the final piece, I've said too much already because people should read the book instead of listening to what I'm saying about it. And they should also read his incredible article on the Khrushchev succession, which is not in, in the book, but is was published as a self-standing article, but it's of a piece with the book. And And the other thing he shows is that These people were all-powerful and there was no collective rule. There's the appearance of collective rule, there's the simulation of collective rule, there's the pretense that there's some type of collective rule, but one person is in charge here even under that pretense, and there's no institutionalization of succession, neither in the Soviet case nor the Chinese case. So when we say that Xi Jinping broke the rules, Broke the taboo. What Joe was able to show was that nothing in that was hard and fast. Nothing was really broken in a Maoist, in a Leninist, Maoist, Deng Xiaoping sense. There's more of a continuity than a discontinuity. But let's not, I'm probably not summarizing Joe's work as well as he writes it in the book. And so let's all take a break make sure we go back and read Joe's book or reread it if we've read it already. And let's talk about it again and again, because it is a massive point of departure for understanding how this place is going.
0: So we're recording this on Tuesday, March 7th. Yesterday, she said that Western countries led by the U.S. have, in, have implemented all around containment, encirclement and suppression against us, bringing unprecedentedly severe challenges to our country's development. Any thoughts on that as like the, the new rhetorical space that she's now comfortable occupying in public?
1: It's hurting now, isn't it? It's hurting him. He's feeling it now. The changeover that we got from Secretary of State Pompeo and And National Security Advisor McMaster and his deputy, Matt Pottinger, in the Trump administration, which sometimes played out clumsily because Trump and policy are hard to put in the same sentence. And Trump was the president, but his staff was remarkable. And his cabinet officers in some cases, were remarkable. And we got a turnaround in China policy. We went from a fairy tale, from an imagined China, from a China that didn't exist in reality, and an engagement policy based on a fairy tale to a better understanding of what China was doing and where it was going and the game it was playing and the game that we were in, that's actually the basis for a better engagement policy, ultimately, for a better diplomacy, for a stabilized relationship. Trying to engage in diplomacy and stabilize the relationship based upon illusions and a misunderstanding of the nature of the Chinese system and the direction it was going, is is not a sustainable project. So the ratcheting up of tensions that we're in right now is actually more promising for getting to a stabilization of the relationship, more promising because it's more realistic, it's more empirical, it's more accurate, it's a better understanding of how each side is operating and what the strengths and weaknesses are of each side. So I'm actually quite optimistic about the state of play right now, provided we open up the diplomatic stuff, because being strong and being deterrent and showing your teeth and putting some export technology controls is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end, and that end has to be a more stable relationship. And the Biden administration is complaining, and no doubt that this is accurate, that the Chinese are refusing to engage, they're refusing to meet, that they don't want to engage in diplomacy again. So I would be appearing in every single capital of the world. I would fly into all the ASEAN capitals, and I would fly into all our allied capitals, and I would fly into all the Global South capitals, and I would announce that we're ready to engage with the Chinese in diplomacy, and here are the 15 issues that we'd like to talk about, and the Chinese won't meet with us. So let's meet right now, any place you want. Here are the 15 issues I'd like to discuss. So if it's empirically true that the Chinese are not responding to the overtures of the Biden administration to engage in diplomacy again because they see the U.S. as overly aggressive, I would say, let's get on the front foot there. Let's put the Chinese on the back foot. The Chinese like to say that the U.S. is engaged in the suppression of China's rise. That all we do, we're committed 100% to holding China down. And then out of the next breath, they like to say, oh, nobody can hold us back. Nobody can hold China back. And so what's our response to that? Our response is to deny we're trying to hold them down that we're trying to prevent China's rise. And nobody believes that response. The Chinese don't believe it. The Global South don't believe it. Some of our allies even don't believe it. And I'm not sure how many people on our side believe it. So that's actually not the correct response, even if the Biden people think it's true to their word. The correct response is, you say that we're trying to hold you down, and then in the next breath you say that nobody can hold you down. So what are you afraid of? We can't hold you down. You just said that. So why are you all bent out of shape about us trying to hold you down when you're declaring across the world that nobody can hold you down? And so that's how you get on the front foot as opposed to the back foot. That's how you win that kind of debate. That's how you engage in the diplomatic give and take and say not just to the Chinese but to all of the others who are listening and watching how this is being this crucial relationship for world order and stability is being managed. And now we have Xi saying that, you know, we're having problems because they're trying to hold us down. And so my view on that is we're doing something right. Because if he's now trying to use that as an excuse for his own ineptness and his own failures, I'm not of the opinion, uh, many China watchers are, that Xi Jinping is an American agent. That is to say that he is eroding Chinese power in every domain, vigorously and really across the board. He's ruining China's reputation. He's undermining China's strategic position, right? The Europeans attempted to appease China, Angela Merkel in the first instance, by rushing through a trade agreement with China minutes before Joe Biden was going to be inaugurated. It was a a distancing of Europe from the U.S. on China policy. And what happened? Xi Jinping did not permit the Europeans to appease him at the expense of the Americans. He undermined the Europeans' attempt to undercut the Biden administration before it was even in power. And I look at that and I say, oh, my God. Sure, I understand why you think he's an American agent, that he's doing our work for us, but we can't talk like that. We have to talk in terms of China's a great civilization. China's got remarkable achievements. You don't need me to explain the greatness of China. You don't need a visit to a museum to see the greatness of China. It's everywhere in our civilization, so many, in our common civilization, so many of the innovations and the achievements. It's just a spectacular story, China. And it will continue to be so going forward. That's how we talk. That's how we talk about China. We love China. We're impressed by China. We think China is one of the greatest civilizations that ever existed. We want to share the planet with China. The issue is, under what terms are we going to share that planet? Is it going to be what happened to Lotte World inside China and the boycotts of South Korean businesses? Is it going to be the terms that they tried to impose on our friend Australia, those 14 demands and those boycotts? Is it what they did to Hong Kong? Are those the terms with that national security law? Is it what's happening in Xinjiang? Is it what's happening in Tibet? What are the terms of sharing the planet? And my answer to that is we need better terms than what the Chinese have on offer. But we need to negotiate those terms. And the way you negotiate those terms is you get on the front foot, you're not anti China, you're pro China, you de conflate Xi Jinping and China, you de conflate the regime and the people and the nation and the civilization and the history, and you say to yourself, we're going to deal with your regime because you're the government of China. You're the legal government of China right now. But we're going to deal with it not on the terms that you're trying to set. We're going to deal with it on our terms. And if you don't want to talk, we're going to tell everybody that you don't want to talk. What are we doing shutting down Confucius Institutes like we're afraid of them or like we're the communist regime? They open a Confucius Institute at Stanford University. We open a Confucius Institute across the street and we love bomb Chinese culture and ours is pluralistic and it doesn't eliminate certain ways of thinking, certain ideas, certain topics. In fact, communism can be one of the topics. We can have communist officials deliver lectures about communism at our own Confucius Institute because we practice pluralism and we're not afraid. And we love Chinese culture and we love everything about the great achievements. And we do have to share the world with them. But we want a world in which rule of law, open society, open dynamic market economy, rules, reciprocity, where those are the values Those are the terms of the relationship. And if we can't get it all with China, we've got to get as much of that as possible. And we have to keep both the pressure on and the diplomacy, right? There's a new biography of George Shultz, my former colleague here at the Hoover Institution. We were yesterday in his convening room, his seminar room, the Annenberg room, where he presided for decades over conversations including China policy Let's remember that Schultz was a diplomat, that Schultz dedicated his whole life to deal-making, but the issue was always the terms of those deals. That's in our DNA. That's something we can do. And so this is not hawkishness for hawkish sake. This is not run China right off the globe. We can't do that. We shouldn't do that. And try to do that would ruin us. This is, we're in this together together. But what are the terms of that deal? And so I like the fact that Xi Jinping is now crying uncle and trying to use American pressure as an excuse to cover up his own mistakes and failures and some of the weaknesses of that system. It'd be foolish to count the Chinese out. It'd be foolish to count Xi Jinping out. It'd be foolish to think that he's an American agent and he's going to go on continuing to mess up there's only so far a superpower like the United States can go when someone else is doing the work for them. We have to do some of that work ourselves.
0: So, you know, we, we are here at the Hoover Institution, a, a 2006 Chinese sort of state TV documentary about the fall of the Soviet Union cited Ronald Reagan as saying, the final decisive factor is not nuclear bombs and rockets, but a contest of wills and ideas. Take that idea and apply it to the sort of discussion exactly. we've been having.
1: Could that, be, could that be truer today than it was when Reagan said it? People have a hard time understanding Reagan. There's so much partisanship, and he's a complex figure. The Inboden, the William Inboden book, Peacemaker, on Reagan, it's just a tremendous book, and I couldn't recommend it more highly to your listenership. So Reagan is two things simultaneously It's really important to understand. He's a movement conservative. He believes in God. He talks about Christianity and God in his foreign policy speeches as well as his domestic policy speeches. This is why Inboden, who wrote a previous book about the role of religion in the Cold War and American foreign policy, is able to understand Reagan. So he's a movement conservative. At the same time, he's a dealmaker conservative. A dealmaker conservative in the mold of the Schultz or the James Baker types, Right? The people for whom free markets are really important and open society is really important. And ultimately, it's about coming to agreements and figuring out how to solve problems in enhancing prosperity and peace and sometimes making some concessions because you need to get to a better outcome. That's what deal making is about. Making any concessions to a movement person is usually really hard. In fact, deal making for movement people is hard. Because your purity somehow gets, I don't know if the word is contaminated, but the shine comes off a little bit in the nitty-gritty of the deal-making. So the beauty of Reagan, which, once again, not everyone can grasp this because of the partisanship, is he's a mov- movement conservative and a deal-making conservative simultaneously. And he's a deal-maker Because of the movement conservative side of him. Because he wants a world of peace. He actually wants an end to nuclear weapons. He believes in this stuff. And he's willing to deal as a result of those beliefs. So he's an unusual person who combines both the deal-making and the movement, the belief system, these really fundamental stories. And so for Reagan, he can go to Moscow. And he can meet with the dissidents, including the evangelical Christians, who are the largest group of dissidents throughout Soviet history. It's not the constitutionalists, it's not the Western liberals who are as willing to die for their beliefs. Many of them are. It's the Christians, the evangelical Christians, who are willing to die in order to practice their, willing to risk death in order to practice their religion freely. And so Reagan will go meet with them, and then he'll go meet with Gorbachev, the general secretary of the Communist Party, and he'll do both. There are members of his administration who don't like him meeting with the dissidents and the evangelical Christians, because it could undercut Gorbachev and undercut his ability to make a deal with Gorbachev. And then there are the people who are the movement conservatives in Reagan's administration, who don't want any deals with the communists. They don't want any negotiations, let alone deals with the communists. They don't think it's proper for a U.S. president representing the free world to even be in dialogue with such figures. And so for Reagan, it's completely natural to meet with the dissidents at the ambassador's house and then to go over to the Kremlin and to meet with Gorbachev on the same trip. And so lo and behold, Reagan is able in ways that we need to recuperate to uphold American values and American interests simultaneously. He's not just about values and democracy promotion or freedom promotion. And he's not just about pragmatism and nitty-gritty interests in in, in some, I don't know what you might call it, realistic, realistic, neorealism. The terminology is whatever you want it to be. He's not one or the other. He's both of those things simultaneously. He can uphold our values and he can uphold our interests. It's not rocket science, but it is a history that we have to return to. You know, I hear a lot of people saying, oh my God, no Cold War with China. God forbid we should have a Cold War with China. And I think to myself, where does it, what world do these people live in? First of all, we're already in a Cold War with China because China started that long before we understood that that's what they were doing. And secondly, would you prefer a hot war? The alternative to Cold War is capitulation, which you can imagine I'm not in favor of, or hot war. World War II was 55 million deaths. That's the kind of lowball number. It depends how you count the deaths in China, which are nearly impossible to fix with any accuracy in World War II. And it's an exponentially larger number compared to the World War One deaths. So can you imagine World War Three, God forbid, the exponential number of deaths increased over fifty-five million from World War II that we'd be talking about? It's just beyond comprehension, let alone that we have these nuclear weapons now, which we didn't have in World War Two until the very, very end. And in any case, the firebombing killed many more Japanese civilians than the nuclear weapons did. And and and, and so just to keep this point now, hot war is so bad, words couldn't describe it. Bad is just an absurd word to describe what World War III would look like. And so Cold War is the fantastic other option where you can compete without hot war and where you don't have to capitulate and you don't get hot war. I mean, it's just this fantastic solution sitting on the shelf for us, and moreover, We're good at it. We've done it before. We know how to do it. We have a lot of tools in the toolkit. Some of them need to be resharpened. Some of them need to be refashioned. But we have this amazing body of knowledge and experience of Cold War that we can put to work again. And we've learned lessons of the mistakes that we made in the Cold War. For example, I would put Vietnam near the top of that list. And so there's a lot of stuff that we did during the Cold War that we need not repeat because we've learned the lessons the hard way. The Vietnamese learned the lessons even worse than than we did because they died in much bigger numbers than we did. And so we can't forget that either, the sacrifices that other places underwent because of our mistakes or our misguided application of the Cold War. So not everything in the Cold War was magnificent, but there's a lot in the Cold War that's of great value. And it can be updated, and there's going to need to be some new tools in the toolkit. And now we see the technology export controls from commerce on uh, China in the tech sphere. Where did that stuff come from? What is that about? So people who are saying they're in favor of technology export controls, but they're against the Cold War of China, I don't understand how they could make both of those statements and hold them. Because technology export controls was was one of the great successes that instrument of the cold war. So I'm, I love the cold war. I'm in favor of the cold war. The cold war is not only a good thing, it's a necessary thing because we have to uphold these values and these institutions. We have to uphold what, what I'm calling the terms of the way we share the planet. The West is just a fantastic success story. It's not a geographical term. It's North America, it's Europe, and it's an enlarged version of Europe now. And it's that whole first island chain in the Pacific, in Asia, right? It's South Korea, it's Japan. You could include Taiwan or not, depending on your point of view about the one China policy in the West. You could certainly include Australia. And, and we could go beyond that, because it's not just even North America, Western Europe, and the first island chain. So that's, a club of institutionally similar, like minded, and valued terms, countries that was the basis for the GATT before we got into the fiasco known as the WTO. It was the basis of this open, non hierarchical, voluntary, free sphere of influence. That's what the West is, as opposed to hierarchical, coercive, non voluntary sphere of influence where you. In- impede the sovereignty of your neighbors rather than enhance their peace and prosperity in a club that they've willingly joined, like Ukraine is trying to do. And so this is our strength. This is how we should go forward. And China has to be a piece of that world. There can't be a world without China. And and that goes also for the global South and all of those countries for whom we opened up the world order to allow peace and prosperity to spread. That was our policy. Our policy was for places like China or India to rise. That was an express policy. There was opportunity at home for social mobility and there was opportunity abroad for other countries to join this enterprise. The problem was always the terms of joining and you could join while cheating. You could join without abiding by the rules. You could join without having to do what you promised or what you signed uh, uh, in a treaty to do. I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have upheld people to playing by the rules of the order that they were becoming beneficiaries of. And so we need to open up that sense of opportunity for others, but we also need to understand what the terms are for them.
0: Okay, we have time for one more and I have five questions. So I'm going to ask them all and I'll let you pick. Rationales that guided Stalinist versus Putin's war machine and how that compares over time. The most surprising thing you've learned about Stalin and his relationship with Mao or just support of the CCP over the course of you know, those 30 years. If you saw Robert Caro's uh, documentary and any sort of thoughts you have about his way of being and what you try to learn and take away from it. And lastly, any feedback you have for me and the coverage I've been doing and and I guess the the China studies community more generally.
1: Well, you've got pretty good surveillance on me. Just like the Chinese regime, you know that I've opened up 96% China talk. I don't know where I stand on the graph with others. But I'm impressed that your surveillance on me is, is quite effective. You know, on the Robert Carroll, Master of the Senate is one of the great biographies ever written, certainly about power and how one accumulates and exercises power and what are the consequences of exercising power. It's a North Star for all of us who do biographies and write about power. Of course, Lyndon Johnson and Joseph Stalin are very different figures, and more importantly, they're in very different kinds of systems. Let's take the Mao and Stalin thing and close on that. Mao, the Chinese revolution, China studies is unavoidable for someone who studies Russia and the Soviet Union. It's not like you are necessarily a China hand or a China person, but you can't be otherwise in in some ways because of the subject matter and because of how deeply intertwined the Eurasian history is. You know, Eurasian ancient civilizations, Iran, Russia, China all of which predate the West and will never accept a Western-dictated, Western-dominated system very easily. The Japanese and the Germans didn't want to accept it either, And, and they were literally crushed in a global war. And I'm not advocating that that's how we would get others to accept it, but you can see what the problem is. And so the histories are deeply in parallel in some ways and then deeply intertwined because of the interaction that the shared Leninist system and the technology export from the technology transfer from the Soviet Union to China with, with all of the expert advisors and all the history you know. And let's face it, the the Guomindang come into this picture as well, and one could go on about this forever. One of the things you discover about Stalin and Mao is that Stalin was afraid of Mao. And this is really remarkable. Not afraid of Mao, that Mao was going to do something for Stalin, but that Stalin was going to go and Mao was going to outlast him. You have this a little bit with Tito. We usually have it wrong that um, Tito broke with Stalin. In fact, Stalin broke with Tito. Stalin excommunicated Tito. Tito had his own revolution in Yugoslavia. Stalin didn't do it for him. Tito did it for himself and with his other partisans in Yugoslavia. And so why should Tito have to be Stalin's minion when Tito was his own revolutionary? Tito in fact was willing to subsume himself to Stalin's rule to a very great extent and it wasn't enough for Stalin. You have it a little bit with Tito but you have it much more with Mao. Now Stalin is definitely critical for the Chinese revolution in some ways. Uh, both against it and for it, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes sequentially. It's a big story. It's a story that's been told successfully before, and I hope to tell it in volume three of my Stalin work. It's a very substantial part of the the Stalin work and, uh, and understanding this trajectory. And what Stalin began to realize was that there's this young, vigorous Mao who had his own revolution. And it's a sort of second Tito, even though Mao could not have been more bootlicking in his approach to Stalin. Mao genuinely admired Stalin. Mao looked up to Stalin with stars in his eyes, literally. They were communist stars, but they were stars in his eyes. And so Mao couldn't have been more subservient and loyal and obsequious and wholesome. The opposite of how we're going to see Mao with Khrushchev and the other pygmies, who succeeds Stalin in comparison to Stalin. Uh, Mao doesn't feel that they're his equal, let alone that they're his master, the way Stalin was. And yet Stalin doesn't, he doesn't know what to do with Mao. Mao can swim lap after lap after lap in the pool and Stalin can barely move. In the post-World War II period, Stalin is sick, he's very infirm. He has his first stroke or mini-stroke in 1945, right after the the Victory Parade, and he disappears for three months from Moscow. And then each year thereafter, he spends four, five, six months down south in Sochi, not in the Kremlin very much anymore. It's not the same Stalin that we associate the the vim and vigor of the wartime leader, the one who so impressed the Western interlocutors from the U.S. and the U.K. who met with Stalin during the war. This is not the Stalin. Jilas saw this, the Yugoslav, who was in Tito's entourage. He saw the toll that the war took on Stalin's physical well-being. And so Mao, not only is he tall, he's unusually tall. Stalin is the short guy. But Mao has got his chest puffed out. And, and, and Mao has the claim of legitimacy of having had his own revolution, That's certainly the perception globally and having the largest country by population in the world. So if you're frail and mortal and and you're not the young man dominating the, the domestic Soviet political system and the global communist order that you were just a few decades ago or just a decade ago and there's this guy on the horizon, what do you do with him? And the more I began to poke into Stalin's treatment of Mao, the more I began to see that Stalin was at some level fearful of Mao's succeeding him as this figure, as this global leader. Stalin was afraid of his mortality like most people, like us all. He was afraid of being knocked off the pedestal by his successors. He said this on occasion. He denounced his successors as unworthy of being in that position of, of of leading the regime after he was gone. And then Mao appears on the scene. And what a figure Mao was in those days. All the contradictions of Mao that we know, we still don't have the Mao biography that he deserves because the Chinese won't let us write it. We have many people trying. We have many people using hearsay and and, and the sushi chef and, and the equivalent of the sushi chef that we have from the Kim dynasty. It's actually in Mao's case his doctor whom we have to rely on. And so we don't have the biography of Mao that's on the scale that he deserves. But we have a lot of stuff of Mao and Stalin because of the revelations that have come from the Soviet side. So that's, of all the Mao stories, the Mao-Stalin story is one of the ones that you can tell with the richest empiricism. And then you can also see the frailty, the mortality versus the vigor versus the future. And in many ways, as you know, China will eclipse Russia, not only as the leader of the international communist movement, but as a global power. So that's a really big story, and I hope to tell that story properly when I'm finished soon with volume three.
2: So
0: we close every episode with a song. Is there like a theme song in your mind for volume three that we should close this episode on?
1: Too many for me to sing right now. But, you know, I I love Sam Cooke and don't know much about history. And this is the problem. When you don't know history, everything is unprecedented. History can't tell you where the future's going. Bad history, junk history, poor analogies from history. You know, everything is Munich. Appeasement, 1938, right? We have a lot of bad history. But good history is unbelievably valuable for cultivating empathy, for getting you to understand the other side, for getting you to understand contingency, randomness, accident, unintended perverse and unintended consequences for getting you to see how structures are hard to overcome. Institutions don't change so fast, so easily, so quickly as we might sometimes like. There are so many lessons of history. Humility is one of the great lessons of history. When we complain that young people don't know history, it's true, but we have to look in the mirror. That's on us. We have to teach history. We have to get them enthused about history we have to get, cultivate the love for history in them that we have in ourselves so they become lifelong learners of history and they become humble and skeptical and empathetic and all the other things, analytical, that history delivers. So when Sam Cook says don't know much about history, that in fact is our rallying cry.
0: Stephen Kotkin, what an honor. Thank you so much for being on China Talk.
1: Oh, you're so kind, thank you.
2: Biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that. biology Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took